Hello, Cachimbonas. Welcome to Season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. This week, I'm excited to share this interview with professor and author Lawrence Ralph about his upcoming book, CETO, An American Teenager and the City That Failed him. We discussed how the juvenile justice system traumatizes youth, lament the criminal legal system's failure to provide healing for victims' family members, and envision accountability without punishment. You can support the podcast by joining the Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber for as little as $3 a month or 5 or 10 if you're feeling and able to be more generous. You will get access to dozens of lit reviews, which are book club style chats with other women of color and also early access to public episodes like these. But most importantly, you are allowing me to continue podcasting. I don't do corporate ad space because I believe being listener funded allows me to keep the political integrity of the podcast intact. So thank you so much to the Patreon supporters. Another completely free way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast and to share the podcast with friends. You can follow the podcast at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Bye! Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I'm very excited to have Professor Lawrence Ralph. He is a professor of anthropology at Princeton University and the director of the Center on Transnational Policing. We're here to talk about his book, CETO, An American Teenager in the City That Failed Him. Professor Lawrence, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. To start off, I wanted to ask about what made you want to write this book and tell Cito's story. You mentioned in the book, you only met him once, but he obviously meant a great deal to your family members. So what made you want to write this book and tell his story? Well, I think the major thing that made me want to tell the story was being at his funeral and just seeing the sense of urgency with my family to try to prevent the cycle of violence from repeating itself. And that's something that Sito's father and Sito's mother really wanted in the aftermath of his death to find a way to prevent it from happening again. And I felt that the immediacy of that problem demanded a solution that would live on, a solution that would remind people of how these cycles repeat themselves, but also what we can do to stop them. The subtitle of your book is An American Teenager in the City That Failed Him. Could you get into the cycle of violence that you're referring to and how exactly it was that San Francisco failed CETO? Yeah, so the book really revolves around four teenagers. When Sito was 14 years old, 
he was accused of murdering one of his former classmates, a boy named Rashawn Williams. He witnessed Rashawn's murder, and Sito ended up being murdered five years later at the age of 19 by Rashawn's little brother. And so that event affected Rashawn, affected Sito, affected the person who killed Rashawn, who was also killed in retaliation for Rashawn's death. And it affected Rashawn's brother, who is in the system and was charged with Sito's murder. And so when I'm talking about the system failing Sito, I'm really talking about the system failing all four of these young men and failing them in the sense that no one was ever charged for Rashawn's murder, even though there was video footage of the attack. Sito was arrested and spent five months in juvenile hall, which substantially altered the trajectory of his life. Uh, Miguel, who was the one who actually killed Rashawn, was killed again in retaliation. And so there was no kind of societal solution for that encounter. And there was no way for those young men to get themselves on track. When I'm talking about the city failing them, I'm talking about how do we think about solutions other than incarceration or death that allows people to heal from traumatic circumstances? Something that was apparent in your book is the limitations of the criminal legal system in providing healing for victims' family members. You mentioned one example of the system failure was the failure to prosecute anyone for Deshaun's murder. But at the same time, a big chunk of the book looks at all the ways that the carceral system ultimately ends up harming more the perpetrators of harm. And Cito himself was an abolitionist. So where do you stand when you're talking about carceral alternatives? When you're talking about alternatives to incarceration, what is your vision for that? And does it include police reform? Or did Cito's values resonate with you more after writing this book? Thank you for that. I mean, I think Cito and I share many of the same values towards the end of his life. As you said, he was an abolitionist and he was looking for ways to think about punishment without incarceration. And that had to do with his time in juvenile hall. At the same time, writing this book made me realize how important accountability is. Part of what I'm trying to do is disentangle accountability for punishment from punishment, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we do need systems of accountability. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there was no accountability leads people to try to seek accountability in the ways that they see fit, right? And that mm-hmm. can lead to more cycles of violence. And so I think it's imperative that we have an imagination for thinking about, okay, when somebody does commit a crime, how do we hold them accountable? And how do we think about the emotional stakes of something like murder for the community and for families when we're thinking about accountability? How do we think about the fact that someone may not admit that they committed a crime when we think about accountability, right? 
And so I think like there's an important nuanced conversation that we have to have about accountability, even and especially from the perspective of those who want to work towards the abolition of prisons. Part of what the book does is try to get at the heart of some of those kind of sticky entanglements in those debates. Where I stand in particular is that I recognize that we need accountability. And I want to think about how do we think about accountability as we also think about the ways to reduce the imprint of policing in the carceral state at the same time. So when we reduce that footprint on our society, because we know that that doesn't work either, how do we still think about that? And after writing this book, I've thought more and more and I've realized more and more that we have to include the emotional aspects of the trauma that families experience. And we have to include what they go through without putting the burden on them to do the reparative work themselves. I think that we as a society have to be more attuned to that burden and take on that burden, relieve families of that burden so that we can better think about what it actually takes to heal. Because part of the tragedy of this, of Sito's murder, is that Rashawn's little brother didn't get enough support when his brother was killed. And he didn't get enough institutional support to be able to process that death in a way that would enable him not to want to reproduce the violence. And so part of what I'm urging for is a kind of system that can build that into how we think about crime and how we think about justice. appreciate that because reading your book, it was very apparent how family members from multiple perspectives, Cito's family members, Deshaun's family members, didn't get any kind of emotional healing through the criminal legal system. And I did think that this highlighted the limitations of a quote-unquote progressive prosecutor like Chesa Boudin, because reading the book, it felt like there's no way to actually be someone that holds progressive values and is a prosecutor because of what the job entails, what it doesn't entail, which is that emotional healing component that I think would have gone a long way to stop potentially the cycle of violence that you just mentioned, which was Deshaun's little brother feeling like he had to take justice into his own hands because the systems as they exist now weren't going to give what he felt was needed for his brother's death. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. And I think part of what Sito's father always says is this is what they want. They want us in terms of people of color to kill each other so they don't Mm -hmm. have to grapple with this. And it's easy to kind of reject that sentiment, but you see how it plays out when it comes to these cycles of violence, right? In terms of progressive politics, yeah, I mean, that's part of what I was trying to show. And this is something that I learned more through the course of doing, writing this book. I feel like when we think about progressive politics, we often 
think about it strategically as if, okay, we get the right person in place. We change the right laws. Now we can have our laws instead of their laws or something like that, right? But the problem with that, especially in this political moment that we're living through, this historical moment that we're living through, the pendulum can swing back and forth really easily. Mm -hmm. The fact that you can have aggressive district attorney and then have a conservative one Mm -hmm. a couple years later, or that progressive attorney can be recalled, as in Dean's case, means that it leaves communities with a sense that the system is just arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because you have the same crime, the same people from the same communities doing the same thing. And they get radically different treatment depending on who's in. And this is only within a couple of years apart. It's not generations apart or mm-hmm. something like that, right? That sense of arbitrariness also spurs more violence. Yeah, we have to think about things that are fundamental, things that last beyond the election cycle, things that are rooted in core beliefs rather than strategic ways that we might win elections or or something like that. I do think that shining light on the arbitrariness of the criminal legal system is an important goal in and of itself because the narrative around the criminal legal system is that it is one of justice. I mean, people literally refer to it as the criminal justice system. And in actuality, prosecutors have an immense amount of power and I think that's what the progressive prosecutor movement was sort of was trying to wield, was trying to say that if we had a person with better discretion in that position, then things wouldn't be so bad. But I think the years that Chester Boudin was DA and specifically like looking at these specific families and how they were treated by his office, I think, like you said, shows how this goes beyond a district attorney platform. There needs to be a creation of a whole new system of accountability with fundamentally different core beliefs than the one that the criminal legal system currently has. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that's definitely something that I wanted to kind of shed light on and to see exactly the intricacies of how that plays out in real time for families. In the book, you share how Cito's family members struggled between wanting punishment for his killer for him to be tried as an adult, for example, but also expressing sympathy for the life circumstances that led Julius to kill Cito and how you went through that with them. Where do they stand now on the question of abolition and the possibility of restorative or transformative justice systems? One thing that I also wanted to highlight is that within families, there's no like one stance on what should happen. I think Oftentimes, and this was definitely the case within Sito's family, different people had various perspectives on what justice meant, on what should happen to Julius, the context of abolition versus reform. Again, I wanted to bring out those contradictions. I think that part of wanting Julius to, even in the most extreme cases, to be tried as an adult. Part of that wasn't just to punish Julius. It had to do with the fact that when Sito was 14, they were trying to try him as an adult. 
for a murder he didn't commit. Part of it was just pure, a reflection of what they thought was the hypocrisy of the situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they did that to Sito and they saw how it destroyed their lives. Why aren't they doing the same things to this other person? Again, I think that it has to do with part of the problem we just discussed about discretionary power of district attorneys. And so that was one thing. But the other thing was just this notion of accountability and what accountability means. And when a family experiences something like a murder, they want to know that it is recognized and that somebody else sees it and that it's not just them that cares. And so a major part of accountability, especially when it's sanctioned by the courts and things like that, is to say, yes, this person's life mattered. Yes, they did live. Yes, it was wrong that they died in this fashion. When there's no accountability, the family's left with feeling like this person's life didn't matter and nobody's recognizing their death besides the family. I think, yes, there was various ways in which people thought Julius should be punished. But I think at the core of it was the fact that if he didn't get punished, then it would mean that the city doesn't care about Sito, didn't care about his life, that they had something out for him and things like that. You know, I think now where the family is is similar to where they were. I think people have different perspectives on it, on what they thought should happen or should have happened. The only difference, I think, is the book is in material form now. And it's like these aren't just discussions um, or interviews that they're having with me. This is like an actual book that has the whole narrative. And so with that book in place, there's a way in which um, it can be triggering for a lot of people. It can trigger the trauma all over again. But the book itself, it can also be a representation of the fact that Sito's lives matter, right? Right. Even beyond what happened to Julius, now there's just a recognition that Sito's life mattered. And if the state couldn't give that, if the city couldn't give that, then at least they gave that through their own narrative. That's really beautiful. I appreciate you laying all that out there. I think it's important to take all this in because systems that don't have an intentional emotional healing component for families I think is one that is really at risk of executing the most vengeful thoughts of somebody who feels deeply wronged. These are the types of sentiments that actually, for example, like continue to support the use of the death penalty. There's often a bit of a spectacle made of, you know, family members of the victim going to the execution and making press statements afterwards about how this is what they thought was justice and this is what they wanted. I'm not saying that I beforehand know all the right ways to feel and all the right ways to react. But I think 
there would be a lot less of sentiments like that if there was a system that focused on getting to the root of people's hurt. Because like you said, the example that I brought up, the desire to try Julius as an adult was one that came from this place of vengefulness, of feeling like, well, Cito was fucked over by the criminal legal system for a crime he didn't even commit. He was going to be tried as an adult. So the same should be true for this person who really did do it. That sentiment is one people with power use and I think you could even say exploit to continue justifying the existence of carceral systems when you could really see it as a reflection of their neglect of family members and their emotions in the aftermath of violence. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I definitely think it's strategic and there is something to be said for the word, I think, exploitation, because in pointing out the various family members with different perspectives and the kind of spectrum of the way that people thought, I am also trying to gesture towards that because it's very easy for a prosecutor to pick the people within Sito's family who want the death penalty, who want the, you know, Julius to be thrown under the jail, all right? But there are other people within the family who don't want that, but they don't, and they're not talking with those people. Mm-hmm. Even about like who comes to stand in for the family, right? When we talk mm-hmm. about these things. And I think that's important. And the, the other family dynamic that I want to point to is the fact that, and one of the main reasons that I wrote the book, to go back to your first question, is that there are other family members who are always listening to these narratives and always taking them in and coming up in the world and are impressionable and are still formulating their ideas of masculinity. In this case, they're developing their identity. And, you know, Sito has two younger brothers. And I think it matters if what they're constantly hearing. If they're constantly hearing nobody cares, this was an atrocity that happened and and nobody did anything about it and they wish somebody would do something about it. Part of their identity is like, okay, when I'm old enough, I'm going to do something. When I'm strong enough, I'm going to do something. When I'm brave enough, I'm going to do something. And the question is, what are they going to do? Are they going to take on the legacy to think about the legal system differently or are they going to pick up a gun? And so the narratives that we tell are vitally important for that younger generation who who is listening, who are taking it in, who are trying to make sense of their lives and their family in terms of the losses that are around them. So we also have a responsibility to think about that as well. I think this kind of segues well into the next question I wanted to ask, which was about how you mentioned it's important to recognize that young people who are victims of violence 
are also likely perpetrators of violence. I wanted to ask you why you thought it's important for communities to acknowledge that. I think it's important because we often, as a society, we want to create victims and perpetrators. Mm -hmm. We want to create angels and demons. We want to create good people versus bad people. There's this idea that society and people are black and white. The problem with that is the nuances of the situation and the fact that when we think that way in these kind of binary terms, we are more likely to want punishment for people who do things wrong. And we're not likely to see them as people that could have been us or people that could have been like our family or could have been a part of our family. We, we kind of villainize them and therefore, whatever happens to them, they deserve, right? And so part of it is thinking through what actually happens when these acts of violence occur, revisiting those acts of violence, trying to think about people's motivations and what they're grappling with, so that we can see the humanity in people who do commit crimes sometimes, and why the motivations that led up to that point. I think if we understand the context of that, we will be better equipped to provide solutions that actually help ameliorate the violence rather than just assuming that people are inherently evil and they do things because there's evil people and therefore evil people deserve maximal punishment, right? And I think too often that's the logic that we live by. Totally. Thank you for that. The last question I ask folks or that I've been asking this season is, what is something that has been inspiring you lately? Oh, I mean, I think I'm always inspired by what people create. Mm. I think creating things with intention is a beautiful part of humanity. So any form of art or music or poetry or anything that's creative, I'm always inspired by. And so I try to weave that into the book through the murals that I discuss in the mission, mm-hmm. where there's, you know, it's it's all over everywhere you look. Mm-hmm. And I think like for me, just returning to that is like returning to hope and returning to creation and returning to like, no matter what happens, people are always working and people are always thinking and people are always trying to make beauty, right? And put color into the world. And so I wanted to remind the reader that that's always there too, no matter what we might be dealing with. Yeah, I really appreciate your inclusion of the murals of the mission in Balmy Alley. I think it's a critical part of mission history and culture and something that has yet to be gentrified away. So I think whoever is in the mission or whoever visits or lives there, obviously, is already enjoying the murals. And if you visit, you should take the time to walk around and look at the murals because it's a representation of the vibrancy of the mission that is a little less vibrant now with the really intense gentrification, but still exists with a spark for sure. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Awesome. So, Lawrence, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Do you want to share when the book comes out and how folks can buy it? 
Yeah, so the book comes out on uh, February 20th. And yeah, it's being sold everywhere that you can buy books. So feel free to visit your, your local bookstore and support that. And um, thank you for engaging with the work. And thank you for your, your really insightful questions that I think get at the heart of what this book is about and what it's trying to do and some of the conversations it's trying to have and continue. Thank you. And I hope the Kachimbonas pick up the book and have these conversations as well with their friends and family. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, Becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona is the best way to do so for $3, 5 or $10 a month. You get early access to episodes like these or exclusive access to the Lit Reviews, which are book club style chats. Another amazing, super, super, super helpful way to support the podcast is to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leaving ratings and reviews really helps podcast with visibility. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Kachimbonas. <laughs>